Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. My name is Jenna, and I'm one of the leaders of the group's virtual chapter. Our January 2020 playlist was curated by our Milwaukee chapter and is all about disinformation and fake news. You can find it at podcastbrunchclub.com slash fake news. And we've also linked to it in the show notes for this episode. The playlist includes an episode of the podcast Function with Anil Dash on stopping fake news. And I'm excited to be speaking today with the show's host and namesake, Anil Dash. Thank you for joining us, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive into fake news and misinformation, um, there, there are probably at least a few Podcast Brunch Club members who are hearing Function for the first time on this month's playlist. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about uh, how the show came about and what you're, you're trying to achieve in producing it? Sure. So uh, Function is a show about the ways that technology affects the world around us, right? So we're all online every day. We're on the internet. We're using social media. And and then we think about, you know, it has shaped culture so deeply and it has shaped our lives so deeply. And and the thing that's unique about this, I think really from our perspective is, so I'm the CEO of a company called Glitch, which is a, a community where people build apps. It's, it's, it's coders and, and people that make software and all that stuff. And so a lot of times we're looking at decisions that people made when they created the technology that resulted in those impacts on the world around us. And, you know, there's no more dramatic example of that than well, we made an app to share some photos with our friends at Harvard. And then a dozen years later, it is spreading misinformation that undermines the world's democracies. Sure. You know, like that's a pretty bad software bug. <laughs> Most of the ones are not usually that serious. But, you know, that was the kind of thing where we just sort of saw that. And and it and it's such a thing that we had to go straight at it. And, you know, particularly in my case, where I've been on social media pretty much from the beginning, I've been blogging for 20 years. I basically joined every social network right when they launched. And so using that perspective to bring in voices of people who warned us, who told us there are these issues that have arisen. And and then especially, you know, the theme of this entire season of function has been about trust. How, do, how can we trust technology given that it's not going away? And, and I, I really think, you know, the story we wanted to tell was who are some of the activists and the people out there that have, that have pointed to the harms that misinformation have caused and what have they done to really try and encourage these giant social platforms to be accountable and responsible. Sure. So, you know, given your your history in tech and you know you've you've been online since the very early days of the internet, you know, when did you first start to sense that yeah, this this misinformation stuff might might be a problem? You know, it was about a decade ago. We had seen in the very early social networks, and if, if people are old enough, they might remember Friendster or LiveJournal or some of these early, like pre-MySpace, like those those kinds of sites. There was always misinformation. There was always people that were, you know, carrying out hoaxes or pranks or whatever. And it was seen as sort of, you know, somewhere between harmless and annoying or just like, well, some people are jerks, right? And it wasn't understood as a systematic problem really until you started to get tens or hundreds of millions of people using social networks. And at that point, about a decade ago, I'd say, um, there had sort of been the first wave of those of us who'd been around these platforms and a lot of academics and researchers and others had sort of seen, hey, this is changing form because it's able to shape the rest of culture. It's influencing mainstream media. It's warping the news. It is putting out, you know, ideas that are very evidently false. I mean, I think one of the the prototypes of the playbook for this whole thing you look at something like the the birther conspiracy theories around uh you know president obama and that was this like 
it's very it was just very evidently false but also it was such an effective way to make media talk about a story that had been constructed and it was largely planned online it was largely planned by people on social media it was largely coordinated by voices that had arisen out of the world of social media because it was a set of technologies designed to give voice to people who hadn't had a voice before. Yeah, and that brings up an, an interesting point about just the the way that the terms fake news and misinformation and disinformation are used. Like like a lot of things these days, they get kind of thrown around in in media and in, in culture. And there's there's mm-hmm. a couple different threads it seems. So there's you know on the one hand like. Uh, Russian troll farms or people in in Macedonia churning out you know articles and things whether to make money through digital advertising or maybe for more nefarious purposes like undermining Western democracy. There's as as you suggested, there's the kind of conspiracy theory element of it where people you know real people, not bots or or fake accounts, are sharing information that they presumably believe in, whether it's it's birthers, as you said, or, or anti-vaxxers or flat earthers. We could go on and on about these things. Right. And then there's also, I think, what President Trump and, and others call fake news, which is news that they don't necessarily agree with or doesn't maybe portray them in the, the light that they hope that it would. Or even like times when the, the mainstream media screws up and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. makes mistakes. So as as you were putting together your this two episode series on on the the media and and fake news, what were you thinking about? And the extent that you can, which of these threads or or strands do you think is kind of most important to to focus on? It's a great question because these things are all linked, right? So there's misinformation, there's media manipulation, there are campaigns to undermine trust in every institution. And what we really want to do is be very specific about the different aspects that we were addressing. I think, of, you know, part of the conversation, the first you know, episode we had on this was with Jay Rosen, who is an NYU professor who's really just one of the smartest thinkers about the role of journalism and conventional mainstream media in these ecosystems of information. And, you know, one of the things that was, I think, really important to point out was the systems being exploited. You know, so one of them is like, what is the economic model of these social networks? And it's essentially gathering data and, and you know, selling the advertising around it. And so they're sort of incentivized to do anything that drives engagement, including anything that evokes an emotional reaction. And then once you understand, okay, that's a underpinning, that's like an economic incentive. That's an underpinning there. You know, and people talk a lot about misinformation or fake news. And, and there's sort of this, as you said, there's both the real part, which is media make mistakes. And the second part is the I don't like this story, so I want to call it fake or inaccurate or whatever. But the bigger part is like those are vulnerabilities that can be exploited by people that want to manipulate media to their ends. And there's lots of reasons they might do it. It's to undermine trust in the media outlet. It is to uh, undermine trust in democracy. It is to exploit tensions that already exist. And so we wanted to be really, really thoughtful and specific about how all those things fit together. And, And I think that really was clearest in the in the second episode Fadi Karan from Avaz, he's, they're an incredible activist organization that's global. They, they spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. But, you know, the bottom line was they took people who had been directly impacted by misinformation campaigns and they took them to Facebook. They took them to Twitter. They had them stand face to face with the people that had enabled these harms to happen. And when you hear those stories of a parent whose child was killed at Sandy Hook talking about what it is to face people telling conspiracy theories that they had faked their own child's death 
and say this to these people that are getting rich off of this at Facebook, you know, the courage it takes to convene that conversation and to, to be advocates for these people, I just think is extraordinary. And, and I think for me, what was great about that was it takes it out of the realm of, you know, it's not this abstract media theory. It's not a, just about what's the feature in the technology. It's how all this comes together and has real impact on real human lives. Yeah. And even just making those those conversations happen is no small feat, I'm sure. And if I'm remembering Fadi's point correctly, that you know, the, the people in the, the room for these discussions are like the product managers, the like mid-level mm-hmm. management at, at these companies. Do you have a sense that these messages, what they're taking from these meetings is making it to the the higher level decision makers and stakeholders and the, the people that could actually make some substantive changes to the way that that content is shared on these platforms? Yeah, I think the concerns absolutely rise up to, you know, to Mark Zuckerberg's ears, to Jack Dorsey's ears. Like, I, I think they see this stuff. I think the question is, you know, what are they going to do about it? And one of the biggest challenges, like if you're Facebook, your entire business model is about gathering this data, is about getting this engagement from these emotional reactions that people have. And so you know, it's, it's a much deeper structural change. Like they're going to say the right thing. Everybody knows the right thing to say now. Like we're sorry that this bad thing happened, right? But even as they reckon with, they don't like being seen as the bad guys and they don't like being unpopular. I don't think they're willing to fundamentally change the business models that have made them billionaires. <laughs> And, and so, so I think they're, they're, part of this is about revealing the gaps. There's a sort of undeniability to having them have to confront the cost of the choices they've made that takes away the plausible deniability that I think a lot of times we rely on. You know, the other thing I would say is that it makes evidence that there are bad actors out there. You know, Peter Thiel, who's on the board of Facebook, has said that he thinks you shouldn't be honest to the media. It's okay to lie to them because they lie to us and we should give what we get. And, and, you know, there's, there's different ways of saying it, but the, but the short version of this is misinformation is a valid tactic from his point of view. And we should understand that, that somebody who has power at the board level in that organization feels that way. Given this, as long as that's the case, then the range of things that are going to change is fairly narrow. And some of the solutions that activists might advocate for seem unlikely to succeed. And being able to have that clarity where there's no longer a, well, maybe they don't know, or they haven't seen it or they've never met the people who are harmed. Once you take away that part of the plausible deniability, I think it's very easy and clear for us to be able to judge these things. And then I think a particular case of you know, coming all the way back to my lens as somebody who's trying to help people make technology, because I still do believe in the good parts. Hopefully we can give people this clarity too. when the next time someone's making technology, making a website, making an app, they are thinking about the most vulnerable. They're thinking about the harms that could be caused. Right. And I know one of the solutions that Fadi and, and, and Avaz propose is correcting the record, right? So if something is proven to be misinformation or or fake news that Facebook or, or whatever the the platform might be, would post a correction or send an update notification to anybody who had engaged with that piece of content. And, you know, I was I was thinking about that in, in context of some of what you and Jay Rosen talked about and, and some of what you've been saying about trust, right? So trust in Silicon Valley is 
pretty low right now. I mean, as is the case with the media as well. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, given that that low level of trust, is there you know, reason to believe that that people would buy into these corrections or, or things that Facebook or, or platforms would put out if that would would eventually happen? You know, I had that same question and I I talked to Fadi about it because I think there's definitely there are some people who will see a factual correction not as evidence that they were wrong or misled, but as proof that they were right. If these people are trying to tell me it's not the truth, that means it must be the truth. Yeah, right? there's it, it all feeds into the conspiracy and the deep exactly. state covered up. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question there's some amount of that kind of conspiracy thinking. But Fadi made a really compelling case to me that there are a large number of people working in good faith that might just not know. It, they, they, you know, they had confirmation bias where, oh, this thing sounded like something that sounded believable to me because I already thought that about those people. But because I got a message from this platform that I get information on, and said, by the way, that's not true, then they're sort of swayed. And, and part of what he called out, and I think this makes perfect sense, is you're not shaming somebody. You're not saying, you dummy, you got tricked. You know, you're sort of saying, oh, by the way, we know you want to get it right, and let's make sure you get it right, and here's this thing that was inaccurately shared. And basically absolving them of it being intentional and sort of giving them a space where it's a little more forgiving, but still offering that correction. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's sort of human nature, right? And actually, if we think about personal relationships, somebody who can tell us when we've screwed up, we trust a lot. Like a good friend is somebody who tells you when you've made a mistake. So I think if you can build that kind of relationship into social platforms where it's a, being a, a trusted party that respects you enough to tell you the truth, that's the holy grail. I mean, that's the ideal. Uh, the question is whether we can ever get to that level of trust. Yeah, you know, bringing back that idea of community that that in some ways was the point of founding all these things in the first place, right? Somewhere where you do actually know the people that you're communicating with and, and trust them as opposed to just this big, like, nameless, faceless data advertising algorithm that, like, spews content at you 24-7, yeah. And even just being able to judge what part of our information diet they should be. I mean, I always use the analogy and, you know, I'm, I'm biased here because Glitch is a place where people make their own sort of personal stuff. But you think about what if all you ate were factory farmed fast food, um, you would not feel very healthy. Right. It's like sometimes. Sure. Right. Like everybody does it sometimes. But if we think about, you know, the meals that mean something to us, it is our family and friends are around. It's probably part of our tradition or our heritage. We know what the ingredients are and we might've even made it together, you know, cooked it together. And those are the meals we remember. And that's the moments that we look back on fondly and, and have warm feelings about. And I think all those things apply to technology. We say, where is the locally made, organically grown technology? We know all the ingredients that we used to make it. We know where our data goes when it's used. If that's not at least part of your information diet, if that's not at least some of the apps on your phone, well, then you're going to get sick. You're not going to be healthy because all you're having is the, you know, the factory farm stuff. You know, I don't want to overextend the analogy, but I think those, those frameworks are really useful. And the ways that we can start to be prompted to think about those things is when we get to hear conversations like, you know, what Avaz is doing that is talking about the costs of us going all in on that, you know, that factory farmed information mode. Yeah, I'm going to actually keep it going one step further and say that, you know, a lot of times that stuff that's that's bad for us tastes so good. It's so hard to, yes. to resist. Well, it does. It does in the moment. Right. Yeah. And then immediately after you're like, well, I kind of feel sick. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess just to, to kind of circle back on that a little bit, I mean, we, we talk a lot in the, the episodes in this playlist focus a lot about what the, the platforms should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is all of our responsibility to make sure that we're not, to the extent that we can, falling victim to to this this fake content, knowing that it's mm-hmm. likely not to to stop anytime soon? Yeah, that is one of the most important places to start. There is no such thing as logging off. Like a lot of people are like, if you don't like it, delete your Facebook account. And the truth is you can't. If you have an online presence, they're tracking you anyway, whether you're officially making an account or not, right? Google is there, Facebook is there, whoever you want to talk about. So there is no opting out. There is no logging off. These are going to be parts of our lives for the rest of our lives. So then once we sort of understand that as the basis because of the amount of data being collected, And the second part is our personal culpability versus systemic culpability. And again, I would use an analogy of something here like climate change. So we've all been told, oh, you got to recycle, right? And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But also we need to stop digging fossil fuels up and burning them in mass. And that's actually the thing that's going to change. Like we could recycle every bottle and can everywhere and it would not stop this massive change that's happening if we don't make structural changes. And so I think the same is true for the, for the data piece, which is like, we should make good personal choices. If you want to delete your Instagram account, you can. I think it's too high a social cost to ask people to say, you know, in my case, I'm like, I have a lot of objections to what Facebook does. And I also have family around the world who I can only speak to on WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook. I'm not going to refuse to learn about what my nieces and nephews or cousins or, or whatever are up to because of the data policies of one company. Right? I'm not going to lose connection to my family on the other side of the world for that. So that cost is too high to ask people to bear. Therefore, what else can we do? And I think the biggest thing we can do is, going back to the food analogy, diversify our diets. At least some of our time online has to be spent in places that are not participating in misinformation and amplifying distorted media and uh, exacerbating these problems with disinformation. If we can spread more of our attention across things that are good for us, It'll incentivize these platforms to do right. And that's really the only kind of change I think that at a consumer level we can do. I will strongly advocate, like I think regulation and policy have a huge role to play. You know, we're seeing already laws being passed, like the new California privacy law. There's been a number in the in the European Union. But but if we can do more laws like that where we can really compel these companies to be responsible with their data and how they share it and what their practices are around content that they allow and what they moderate. That can be really, really powerful. And, you know, it's obviously this is not a moment in history where that kind of regulation or policy seems like it's in fashion, but I think it could come back. Yeah, it seems like lawmakers are, are maybe finally starting to understand the the severity and the, the scope of some of these issues. I know there were like memes that went around of like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had to like explain the Internet to people on Capitol Hill when he first started going over there. But it seems like that's right. some of that has has started to, to change for sure. So we have an election coming up in in less than a year. All the, the conversations about, you know, Russian disinformation, all these things are already starting to, to happen. Do you think that we are likely to see from the platform side any substantive changes between now and, and November? You know, if you talk to Facebook or YouTube or these other platforms, they will say they are making changes or they have been making changes. And I think some of them have. I think it's sort of kind of around the edges. There's small incremental changes. 
there are some fundamental things like Facebook has refused to stop the spread of information that is known to be false on their platform. So they've made a choice, right? And they would argue, oh, well, we're choosing how much it gets shared and, you know, all these other sort of factors around there. But push comes to shove, they are not saying you're not allowed to lie in a political ad on our platform. And in fact, there's some interesting choices like Twitter. I think in their case, they just said, we're not going to allow political advertising on our platform. That I like that. That's a great answer, right? Because it solves a whole category of problems. Because like Facebook's argument is, oh, well, we don't make that much money off of political ads. So we're not just doing this to get rich. And I'm like, the fact that it's a small amount of money makes it even worse that you allow it. Right. At least if you, at least if it were greed, we'd be like, oh, okay, all right. You're doing it because it's going to make you a billion dollars. If you're like, it's small money and it's bad. It was like, well, that's, that's kind of weird, right? Yeah. There's some like weird conception of, of democracy that they use to, to justify a marketplace of ideas type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a, it's a very sort of skewed view of this thing. I think, you know, there was a sort of at least intellectually honest response from Twitter where they're like, hey, look. It's not that much money. It's not going to make a big difference for us. We're only going to get boatloads of grief for it. So we're not going to allow it. And I'm like, hey, that's not the most elevated reason to do the right thing. But if you get there, I'll take it. Right. Well, you know, like like a lot of things, I think the first step to solving a problem is realizing that there is one. And I, I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, your show and the others that we've listened to this month have hopefully helped to uh, enlighten our members and anyone else who's who is listening. You know, your listeners, of course, about the scope of, of what's happening here. So thank you for that. Um, I have one more question for you before we, we wrap up here. Sure. Podcast Brunch Club is a listener community. Uh, a good chunk of each chapter's meeting is spent discussing, you know, what other podcasts we're listening to and 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 what we we recommend, even even across chapters across the country throughout the world. Uh, so, what are a couple of podcasts you would recommend to our community? Uh, one of the first that comes to mind is by a journalist in uh, Minneapolis, Andrea Swenson. She's done a show called The Story of 1999 which is about Prince's album, 1999. It came out back in 1982. And it is, it's the kind of show that I love, which is like, how did this thing get made? Almost like an oral history. She talks to a lot of people involved in making this thing. It's very tied to the, a lot of things I love about urbanism and like sort of the, the geography of the cities involved, like all these kinds of things that you wouldn't think of uh, when thinking about pop music. And she just does a brilliant job of storytelling. And you, you know, you, the, one actually a great hook is like the very beginning of the first episode is about a like uh young prince like way before he's a rock star or anything he's like in his early 20s he gets his big break opening for the rolling stones and gets booed off stage with people throwing food and garbage oh, at wow. him and how he channels that energy into building his like breakout album and becoming one of the biggest rock stars of the 80s is like the starting point for that story and that's episode one cool. so i i I really, really just love the storytelling there. And, and, and obviously it's got a good soundtrack too. Cool. Uh, any others you'd, you'd like to share? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of really good thinking about sort of the intersection of technology and culture right now that I get a lot of inspiration from. Ariel Dumras has a show called uh, Reset, which is a sibling show of ours on, on Vox and just does a really, really good job of thinking through these questions in a big picture. And I, I love how they dive so deep into how did we end up in this place? And so I'm, yeah, I'm constantly sort of always excited about like, oh, they, they explained that thing that I knew was sort of tickling the back of my brain, but didn't know how to ask. And uh, what's up next for a function? 
we are thinking through a lot of big questions in in season three as we get ready for it. And and I think one of the biggest areas we think about with technology is this sense of well, kind of how do we end up here? You know, season two has been a lot about trust and how do we deal with these devices and these apps being in our lives all the time. But we think a lot about kind of echoing these themes. What are the other choices we can make? What are the other technologies we could use? What could a different internet look like? What what are the things that people are doing to make things better? And pointing out that there are other ways of creating technology and other ways of building business models and other ways of building, having impact on the world um, uh, is really exciting. So that's a lot of what we're exploring going forward is to point out what could work so people can imagine a, a better technology world. Great. Well, we will uh, look forward to hearing that when season three comes out. And in the meantime, you can find Function and the rest of the playlist on disinformation and fake news at podcastbrunchclub.com slash fake news. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anil. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support more connections in the world, please consider throwing us a few bucks on Patreon or make a one-time donation. I'll put the links in the show notes. Every little bit helps. Also, a quick thanks to our early organizational partners. Podbean. You can go to podbean.com slash PBC for one free month of podcast hosting. Listen Notes is a podcast search engine. Podchaser, the IMDB of podcasts. Critical Frequency the podcast network for everyone else, The Venn Media, a weekly newsletter for curious minds, and Lintigua Williams and Company Network, beautiful ideas in motion. Finally, some credits for this episode. Stevie Zampanti of Conceptual Podcasting does our audio editing. Music is from Chad Crouch and Misael Ghana, downloaded from Free Music Archive. I'm Adela, founder of Podcast Brunch Club. Thanks, and happy listening.